If you need a Bible, there's Bibles there on the back shelf. We'd encourage you to follow along in God's Word with us. We're going to be in Psalm 25. Head over to Psalm 25 in your Bible or on your device. We're going to start at verse 8, second part of a series through Psalm 25 here. Most of us are probably familiar with University of Phoenix's I Am a Phoenix ad campaign, right? We've, we've seen, hey, okay, makes sense because they spend over $100 million a year on advertising. And that was back in 2009, I read that stat. So the commercials, if you're unfamiliar, uh, which clearly you guys know about them, but the commercials tell stories of people who have enrolled in the university's programs. They overcome obstacles and not only receive a degree, but that's secondary to the fact that they've been transformed along the way, right? They've been made stronger and smarter and better equipped to achieve in life. At least that's what the ads suggest. And hoping that everyone will then run out and enroll in University of Phoenix's programs. Well, last week we started looking at Psalm 25 as if we were students in one of King David's master classes. David, of course, is an absolute expert in spiritual devotion and intimacy with God. We talked about this last week. If you wanted to talk about, hey, who in the Bible is someone who uh, understood um, intimacy with God, someone who understood devotion to God, following after God, well, certainly David is in uh, the top tier of that list. He had way more than graduate-level training in these areas. And his psalms, there's lots of them, but his psalms, they not only touch our hearts emotionally, and they do, and that's good, But we see that they also serve as lectures, which guide us along the way that David himself had taken as he learned to follow the Lord. And so as we read a lot of his psalms, obviously we're really familiar with Psalm 23 and many of Psalm 5, many of David's other psalms that feel more song-like. But lots of David's psalms, like this one, actually parts of them are classified as wisdom literature. And he uh, was one of the psalmists who used acrostic psalms. We've talked about this before, too, where each line of the psalm would be started by the consecutive letter in the Hebrew alphabet. That was done so that people could memorize and could um, understand the information. And many of his psalms read very much like a lecture or a sermon, even more than they do like a poem. And so they touch our hearts emotionally, but they also serve as lectures for us to guide us along the way he had taken. Now we saw in the first section last week that David talked about when and why he enrolled in God's master class. Uh, He wasn't just uh, speaking with only academic knowledge. He could speak with firsthand experience uh, from what he had learned and was now passing that on to the readers and to the listeners of this song. In our verses this evening... After enrolling here, he gives an evaluation of the program and the master professor, God. And he testifies, David testifies, that if you join God's program, it will change your life. Not just setting you up for a great future, but actually transforming the fabric of who you are. You're not just getting a degree out of this thing. Uh, You're not just getting a ticket into heaven, but you're actually having the very fabric of who you are transformed by the power of God. We want to think about that transformation tonight and reflect upon the wonderful future we have to look forward to as we follow God's will and his ways. So let's begin in verse 8. It says, Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he teaches sinners in the way. Last week's verses, if you weren't here, they focused on the tender mercies of God and how personally affectionate he is toward his people. And here David continues that line of praise 
And he continues worship and uh, uh, adulation of the Lord, proclaiming that God is good and is upright. He is a generous God. And upright is meant to describe God as being on the level. That's what the term refers to. And so it makes sense that this God, this Lord, would want to impart truth to human beings. He's a generous God who loves truth. He wants to reveal himself. That's been made clear already in the psalm. And so it's natural that this God would be a teacher who wants to impart knowledge to his people. And David points out that God, out of his own goodness, reaches out to sinners, hoping to save and willing to accept anyone who will trust in him and wait on him. It's a good adjustment for my own thoughts, and maybe it is for you too, is to just always remember that God does not have to be convinced to be uh, loving towards us. We don't have to cajole him or convince him or, or talk our way into his good graces, right? It is the Lord who loved us first. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He loved us first. He, out of his goodness, teaches sinners in the way. He made it a point to lean down from heaven and interrupt our destructive path and say, hey, I'm going to do something about the fact that you guys have introduced sin into this world. I'm going to apply the plan of redemption, not just for creation in general, but for you specifically. And for those of us who are Christians here tonight, we could share about how the Lord in some sense, got in our way and interrupted us in order to reach out to us with grace. We didn't have to climb a mountain and break into some temple. And and he said, oh, who are you again? No, he's the one that came looking for us uh, out of his grace and out of his goodness, freeing our will so that we could uh, choose to receive his salvation. Now, Jesus said in Luke 5, uh, something that echoes what David is talking about here. He said in Luke 5 and in Matthew that he came to earth to call sinners to repentance. And through that relationship, based on faith and repentance, God is able to transform our lives as he teaches us in his ways. Look at verse 9. It says, The humble he guides in justice, and the humble he teaches his way. Uh, We should notice a significant reclassification here between these two verses. The people who one verse ago were categorized as sinners are now called the humble. Uh, If you have a King James version in front of you, it calls them the meek, same idea. These people receiving God's instruction and going the way of the Lord as he leads them are from the very beginning being fundamentally transformed. They're being uh, redefined. They're being reshaped by God and his power. No longer are they simply sinners, right? A verse ago, he teaches sinners in the way. No, once once these people are, are in the transformative hands of God, once they're in his program, they are now becoming coming people who resemble Jesus Christ. As we see uh, that, we see that as he transforms them, he then guides them to live a life full of humility and meekness. And so it's a great reclassification. It's kind of subtle, but he says, hey, a verse ago, you were sinners. Now look at who you are. Just one verse later, you're completely redefined. You're completely reclassified. Now that you're in my program, now we're going to call you the humble and the Lord is going to continue teaching them. James reiterates this idea and reiterates this process in his letter in the New Testament. He wrote this in James chapter 1, receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls, but be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. And so we see that same idea of progress and of the application of God's ways and his word. And we see this idea of meekness. When a person becomes a Christian, 
God not only saves them, but he also sends them on a path, the path that David is describing here using the term justice in this case. And although that might have too legal a flavor to us, right? If I hear the word justice, I immediately think of the legal system. I immediately think of courtrooms and lawsuits and attorneys and things like that. Um, but in other translations, like the NLT or the ESV and NIV, this phrase is simply rendered as doing right, right? So we're led by God to become like him, humble and upright and showing generous grace to those around us, doing right, being godly, following after the Lord's example. And the enemy of this process, according to the Bible, is pride, right? The Bible says that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. And so if we want to progress in this program that David is talking about, well, then humility is a necessary requirement. Meekness is a necessary requirement. And like we talked about last week, that's not something that we don't generate the spiritual fruit on our own. It's the Lord who generates it in our lives as we follow him and trust in him and allow him to do what he's doing. But to say that, you know, the idea of an unmeek Christian is an oxymoron. A proud Christian is an oxymoron. Now, we have propensities towards sin, and we still have temptations toward pride, and that's part of um, our human nature, our sinful nature. But the idea that I would remain proud and be a Christian, those things are incompatible. In fact, the Bible is very plain. It says, hey, God's going to resist the proud, and he's going to give grace to the humble. And so uh, one check we want to look at in our lives as we follow the Lord and as we walk with the Lord is, uh, am I growing in humility, the kind of godly humility and meekness that I see demonstrated by Jesus Christ and by these other heroes of the faith, men like David or Daniel or uh, men in the New Testament, men and women in the New Testament that we see exemplifying these sorts of traits? Or am I still acting out in pride and acting out in sort of what, uh, you know, haughtiness or uh, arrogance and those sorts of things? And so humility, a necessary component of the Christian life. Verse 10, all the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth to such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. Walking with God is not only about a destination, it's about the transformation along the way. And David expects that we will be willing accomplices in the work of God. I mean, that's just his expectation, uh, <clears throat> that we wouldn't be, be dragged kicking and screaming, but that we would want to participate in the work that the Lord wants to do. David here expects that we will keep God's covenant and his testimonies. Testimonies here refers to God's ordinances and his regulations. Now, David, as a Jew on the other side of the cross, wrote from a different position than we read, right? I mean, we're on, in a different position when it comes to spiritual things. David was under the Mosaic Covenant and the Davidic Covenant. He had one of his own. But those are covenants that do not apply to you and I as Christians in the New Testament era. We are under the new covenant that was established by Jesus Christ. He said, hey, I've, I'm establishing a new covenant with you. And that means that the regulations that David lived under regarding diet or days or dress or all the rest of the stuff, those things are not binding on us. However, with that said, we are most definitely under commands and regulations and statutes given under the new covenant in the New 
Testament. So even though the specifics David would have been thinking of as he wrote this line are different, right? The specifics of how we worship, the specifics of, you know, the days of the week and the annual feasts and the way we dress and all of that sort of Levitical code that we read in the first five books of the Bible, even though those specifics were different, the sentiment of what David is writing here is still applicable. We're called to keep a covenant with the Lord and we're called to keep his testimonies, which here is referring to ordinances, regulations, and statutes. So we're in the dispensation of grace is what we would say, but it's not a dispensation of anarchy right? Where we just do whatever we do. Effectively, we sin that grace may abound, that God doesn't really have any commands for me. God doesn't have any statutes or regulations for me. The New Testament is full of statutes and regulations. They're different than the Levitical code, but there's all sorts of statutes and regulations. Love your neighbor as yourself. Pray for those who persecute you. I mean, the the New Testament is not just a sort of weird, hippy-dippy, feel-good, all-the-time existential group of nonsense. I mean, there's clear teaching given to us in the Gospels and in the Epistles, right? And so we also are under a covenant, the new covenant with Jesus Christ, and we are under his testimonies, his ordinances, and his uh, commands. And what we're told here is that uh, we're expected to adhere to the commands of our God. And rather than chafe against those things, David encourages us here that those commands are good and merciful. He says, all the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth. Really? Well, it doesn't always feel that way, but it's true whether we feel it or not. Let God be true and every man a liar. He says, all my ways are good. And he says that he, all of his paths are mercy and truth. And this phrase here is perhaps better understood when we read it this way. All the Lord's ways show faithful love and truth. And that's the case even when we're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, right? We may have to walk through that valley, but the Lord is with us and he loves us and all of his ways show mercy and truth. Verse 9, or excuse me, verse 11. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. David can never think for very long about God's greatness without realizing his own unworthiness. It's something that happens a lot in his Psalms. He's talking about the Lord and how great the Lord is and all that the Lord has done. Oh no, I'm a sinner. I need salvation. I need the mercy of God. This happens a lot in his Psalms. As he extols the virtues of God, the master teacher and the incredible work the Lord does in the lives of his people, David suddenly realizes, as it were, that he's not even qualified to be in the class. He's not qualified to be a disciple. He should have been expelled from the program long, long ago because of his sin and his imperfection, just like all of us. And so here he prays another plea for forgiveness and for pardon. The thing about asking for or receiving a pardon is that you're admitting the fact that you're guilty. Uh, this was news to Sheriff Joe Arpaio a couple of weeks ago. I don't know if any of you followed um, that story. I, I just, I, I don't know all the details of that whole thing, but I found this kind of interesting. He was being interviewed on some news, uh, sh- you know, news channel, and the host that was interviewing him asked him something about the presidential pardon he had received recently. And the host pointed out that, you know, when a person accepts a pardon, they are admitting guilt 
for a crime because Sheriff Joe has, you know, again, I don't know all the details, but he has said from the beginning, oh, no, I'm, I'm completely innocent. And so the host said, of course, by re- accepting the president's pardon, you are admitting guilt. And uh, Joe tried to disagree. No, that's not true. And the host, I think, took some uh, enjoyment out of it, but pointed out that, no, actually, it's been legally decided at the Supreme Court level, you know, that there was a case about this very thing. If you accept a pardon, presidential or any other kind, you are admitting that you were guilty and are therefore the beneficiary of that pardon. And uh, so Joe had a rough day that day, but... I guess it doesn't matter if you've been pardoned, right? But, but David here, he didn't need to be convinced, right? He didn't need to be convinced that he had done something wrong. Not at all. I mean, he said, oh man, my iniquity is great. Whenever he looked at the Lord for long enough, he realized exactly who he was in front of this holy, perfect, loving God, uh, who, uh, who he could never offer anything to and never merit any kind of favor from on his own. And so he looked within, David did, and recognized that not only was he guilty, his iniquity was great, he said. Uh, he had a wonderful awareness of sin. And that may seem like a strange thing to say, but that's only because we live in a culture that just wants to feel good about ourselves all the time. We'll lie to others. We'll lie to ourselves as long as we feel good. Hey, I'm doing pretty good. I'm doing great. Um, that's kind of a, a valuable thing in our culture, unfortunately. Whether our feelings, of, our good feelings about ourselves are true or justified or not, we think, no, I, I'm great. I'm better than the next guy over, and I'm really not doing so bad. Well, David here, one of the most spiritual men in all the Bible, was keenly aware of his need for salvation. And he demonstrates for us that mature Christians are people who acknowledge the enemy within and who recognize how poor and bankrupt they are before God. And again, this is reinforced in lots of different ways, not just in the Old Testament, but the New Testament. How did the Beatitudes start? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Those people who realize that I'm bankrupt before God. God doesn't owe me anything. I don't add anything to God, but out of his love and his grace, he reaches down and says, hey, do you want to become one of my children? Would you like to receive the inheritance of Jesus Christ? Would you like to have your life transformed? Do you want to be redeemed? I'll, I'll save you out of the mind iron muck of your own sin. You were at war with me, but I'll bring you into my own household and make you a son and a daughter and a co-inheritor and all of these other things. Um, and that's how uh, great men and women of the Bible understood themselves. They understood that they were guilty before a holy God, but that the Lord loved them anyway. And Paul lived out this example. Commentators notice a really neat backwards progression in the way that Paul would describe himself in some of his letters. He went from calling himself an apostle to then later the least of the apostles to then the least of all God's people and then finally to I'm the chief of sinners, he said. And so it's kind of a neat uh, walk through his mentality as he grew older and more mature even and grew in the Lord. We see also this growing awareness of just how needy he was and uh, how much uh, how much he how lost he was if not for the grace of God. And so it's not that these guys just had poor self-esteem and that they just needed to be told, hey, no, you guys are really cool guys. That's not it at all. I I think it's safe to say that David probably had really high self-esteem. If you met David in a social setting, I think he was a man full of incredible confidence, magnanimous. I mean, he, he had a lot of great stuff going on. It's that the more that they walked with the Lord... 
the more they understood his truth and his ways, and the more humble they became in his hands as he molded their lives, and therefore the more sensitive they were to the glory of God's redemption, his gracious salvation, and the more they could look at their own lives and understand who they were deeper and deeper and deeper in their heart and say, wow, I can't believe the Lord loves me and wants to use me and is bringing beauty from the ashes of my life. Verse 12, who is the man that fears the Lord? Him he shall teach in the way he chooses. So our transformation progresses further here in verse 8. Those being taught were called sinners. In verse 9, they had become the humble. And now we see another stage. They are God-fearers. They are growing and changing and becoming more holy as the Lord does his work and bears his fruit in their lives and as they cooperate with it. Him shall he teach in the way he chooses can also be rendered him shall he teach the path they should choose. Very interesting. And it reminds us that the Christian life is not just just eternal in scope or just mystical in some way. It's also immensely practical. I mean, the Christian life is not just for heaven. The Christian life is for today, for wherever you live on the earth right now right? Uh, God intends to show you and I how to navigate this life with real world guidance and real world help. You know, the questions of life, where should I live? What should I do? Uh, who should I be in relationship with? These are things that God cares about and things that God wants to address, not in weird ways as if we divine him, like, you know, we throw the bones and what do the bones tell me about? That's, that's not what the Lord wants. Um, but as we go to his word and apply his word, right, we've seen that already. Be doers of the word, James says. Hey, you're going to receive the word and then you're going to do that. And as we're taught the paths and the ways of God through the word of God, and as we um, are taught through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and as we are given direction and instruction through godly advice from other believers who are on track with the Lord, these are ways that God uses to guide us into his specific will for your circumstances. Now, the general will of God, there's all kinds of information about the general will of God for all of us in the Bible, right? For every Every Christian, there's all kinds of things. Here's what the Lord wants for every Christian. Be a good citizen, you know, uh, be uh, built up in the church, be an encourager, do the following things, you know, um, as much as, you know, relies on you, live at peace with other people. I mean, there's all kinds of huge uh, sections of information about here's God's will generally for all of us. But then for those questions of, okay, well, what about for me specifically in my family, in my situation, this circumstance, this thing going on in my life where it doesn't say, Gene, do this in the Bible. What do I do then? Okay, well, the Lord says, yeah, I still care about those things. I still have intentions for those things. And I'm still going to guide you through those things as you apply the word and as you are in communion with the Holy Spirit and as you are connected with other believers who can uh, share wisdom as well. So on a practical level, as I'm living life, I should not focus on how to get where I want to go as much as focus on fearing God, right? This has been a key in David's talk throughout this psalm. The key is I fear God, and then God accomplishes his work in my life and directs me and gives me guidance and does all of these incredible things in and through me because God is unfailingly faithful to get me exactly where I need to go. He'll lead me to the good in his mercy as I walk on his clearly marked out with clear boundaries, his path and his ways. 
And so the supreme answer we are on the hunt for in this life is what does God want me to do in my life today? How is God leading me today? I don't know if I have tomorrow. There's nothing I can do about yesterday. What about today? What is God leading me in today? And the Lord wants to lead us in that way. Verse 13 He himself shall dwell in prosperity, and his descendants shall inherit the earth. As I've already pointed out, David's specific circumstances were somewhat different than ours. Under the Mosaic Covenant, there were physical promises for spiritual obedience. Our relationship with God is packed with promises of spiritual abundance in the New Covenant, and that in the end, we will inherit the earth as we rule with Christ in his kingdom. And so all of we Christians here should take time to consider the inheritance the Lord has promised us so that we might not grow weary in doing good. Verse 14, the secret of the Lord is with those who fear him, and he will show them his covenant. Really great verse. Um, we, We should have this kind of verse up in our homes a lot more. There are a lot of different renderings of this verse. The translators aren't exactly sure what to do with this one, apparently. Depending on which translation you pick up, instead of the secret of the Lord, one says the friendship of the Lord. Another says the Lord confides in those who fear him. Another says intimate fellowship of the Lord. But no matter which way it's translated, the sense is clear, right? The sense is that God gives special, intimate access to his heart to those who fear him. Let me read it for us in the Amplified Version. It was uh, encouragement to me. It says, The secret of the sweet, satisfying companionship of the Lord have they who fear, revere, and worship him, and he will show them his covenant and reveal to them its deep inner meaning. And so I think that helps just synthesize all of the thoughts that are contained uh, in this, these rich words of verse 14. What did Jesus say? He said, no longer do I call you servants, right? He made us his friends. He said, I, I'm, I'm not hiding anything from you anymore. I'm making you my friends, friends with whom I share my heart. That's what he said. And so though David is talking about teaching and guidance and direction and instruction and learning and all of that, it's not at all sterile or clinical. It's not uh, traffic school online that you're just clicking through, making sure you're getting it done. No, it's a close and personal one-on-one instruction. Uh, we can do it as a group, and we can do it one-on-one with our Lord as well. That's what the Lord wants for us. That's the program he's invited us into, a relationship of rich, personal interaction that not only brings satisfaction to our lives, but instruction as well. And then verse 15, my eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he shall pluck my feet out of the net. David's confidence in God's love and power made it a no-brainer for him to relinquish control of his life into God's hands. And like we saw earlier, rather than spend his life worrying about his circumstances or specific decisions, he could focus his attention fully just on the Lord, knowing that God would not only show unfailing love and mercy toward him, but that God would also give him direction that he needed so that David would know what to do and when to do it so that he might not fall. And so David has, has shown us how, how to apply this wonderful knowledge and wisdom and this program to your life. And he shows us the example of someone who's walked through it and someone who has uh, enjoyed the fruits that the Lord uh, generates out of the life of someone who will fear him. David had discovered a lot of secrets to life 
spiritual life especially, and now he's sharing them with us. They all centered around the fear of God and realizing who God is. And that didn't mean, of course, that David had no struggles. In fact, he was under pressure and attack all the time, all the time, all the time, including this psalm we saw last week. I've got enemies. We're going to see it next week. He's just going to pray for deliverance. He had a lot of pressures and problems. But despite all of those things, he was being transformed into the hero that we remember him as. And if we could go to him and ask him, how did that happen? He would explain what he says here, that as we fear the Lord and allow God to do what he wants to do in our lives, then we are transformed from fabric to future. And along the way, we grow in intimate closeness with our creator and savior who invites us to bind up our hearts with his and enjoy this spiritual life, life more abundantly day in and day out as we walk with Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.